For today's time of prayer, I wanted to do something a little bit different. Um, and I was thinking about how sometimes on Sundays we don't really actually get enough time of Sabbath and silence. And I'd like for us to take a few moments to reorient ourselves in the space of worship, recognizing the sacred aspect that, of what prayer is. We come to church because church is different than normal life. And besides being with other believers, we come here as an intentional, tangible act of orienting ourselves in a space where all around us, God is here and we can access God. And church sets aside intentional space for that time with God. As a divinity student, being told by my teachers to take intentional times of Sabbath when I have like 55 papers due <laughs> is kind of wild and it's really hard to take, but it's such a rewarding discipline that I've found is truly taking Sabbath and rest and silence when all around is noise. We often get caught up in our week and everything that floods in about what work we have to do, where we have to be, that we don't have enough moments of, of silence where God can speak and we come here to be informed. I thought maybe we could meet some of that need in this space where we have intentional silence, that we can dedicate time to being open to God. So I want us to take this silence for a minute and a half or so and recognize the gravity of this part of our liturgy, not only as a transition into the next thing, but as a time where we can be still where we are as a congregation and come before God. We have the great gift to be in connection with God, and we should treat prayer as this special and rare opportunity to have a conversation with Christ, remaining open to how Christ will speak for us, and recognizing that a prayer that I say might not be one that is on your hearts. And so let no one in this time dictate for you how this prayer should go, but pray what is on your heart. I invite you now to assume a posture of prayer that is comfortable for you, in whether that be closing your eyes or lowering your gaze, hands closed or open. As in some services I've seen, people sit in silence waiting for the sun to rise or waiting until someone feels led to speak who has not been asked ahead of time. If we have other thoughts and distractions that come our way, let them come and go. If we have movement, let it come and let it go and know that those movements are okay and that you do not have to be still to practice silence and listening. Let us dwell now in this joy that we have, that we can be still and know that he is God. Pray now with me together.
Lord, it is living in these moments when we realize how much we are in great need of you, how often we can't hear you. We long for your presence to find you in these restful moments of refreshing stillness where your spirit may wash over us, not unlike the waters of our baptism, reorienting our minds and bodies to living out your purposes for us, for bringing about your glory. We ask to be granted more times of silence that we can take Sabbath, rest, and freedom for mindfulness of you. Because this is how you can empower us to live out our lives in a manner worthy of your gospel and the amazing love we have been given. We come before you to stand firm in one spirit, one body, ready to be at service wherever you need us to go. For that instruction, we stop and we listen. We wish to not only know of how we are loved, but to participate in demonstrating that love. We wish to not only know of your suffering, but to take up our crosses alongside you. Allow us in this state of salvation we find ourselves in to be strengthened and ready to suffer for Christ, not torn down by what keeps us busy and distracted, but rejuvenated by discovering you in this silence, in this Sabbath, that you are our God. Help us continue to find you here. Amen. We need the 
turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be finishing out the chapter today. And as we do, I want to remind you that as we read through these opening chapters of Philippians, we're listening at several levels. One, to hear the counsel of the apostle to our church in our day and our time, our individual lives and our congregational life, and to hear how Jesus, his person, and his work are made manifest before us. We're also, liturgically speaking, in the season called Epiphany, where Jesus' own life and identity begins to show forth after his birth. Very soon we will make that turn into Lent and to begin preparing for and anticipating Easter, but not yet. Today we are still listening and learning for who Jesus is and what Jesus does as God's Messiah. And so today, as we read, I want you with open hearts and open ears, hear all that God has to say. Reminding you that as the apostle began this letter, he began with two strong words of grace and peace that provide the backdrop and the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. And more, the ever-present theme of thanksgiving that follows as the apostle looks, even in his difficult circumstances, at the people whom God has called together to be the church, gathered not because of their affinity for one another, not because they share class or anything else other than the gospel and the great gift of receiving it in faith. Today, as we make this turn to the end of chapter 1, I'll simply remind you that the apostle has strongly implied that it might be possible, indeed it is in some ways his hope, that he will eventually be sprung free from his chains and return to his beloved church at Philippi. Let's hear these words. Verses 27 through 30. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. Whatever happens, if I were to rewrite the title of the sermon, it might be just those two words. Whatever happens. Can you imagine two words with more potential and possibility to work mischief and good in our lives? What? Ever happens. That's, that's how Paul begins this reading 
today. And I wonder, just taking a step back, if in that first reading of the letter to the church at Philippi, whoever was reading that letter to the congregation, maybe it was Epaphroditus, maybe it was someone else, they're reading this letter if people didn't start to get a little excited as they hear Paul strongly suggesting and even implying that he might be able to return to them. People just by the end of of verse 26 high-fiving each other. You have to stop reading. There might be an alleluia. There might be some clapping. There might be applause that their beloved friend and pastor, Paul, this one who had poured out so much into their lives, who offered them grace and peace, that he has written these words, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body and convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. Paul's coming. That's what they hear. Paul's coming. We don't know how, we don't know when, but they heard it loud and clear through my being with you again. And they wouldn't be alone if they had a bit of selective hearing. We've walked uh, more methodically through those first words and we hear Paul speaking in many ways about both potential trajectories of his life one that takes him to be with christ that is his death and then this other pathway staying in the body and returning to the church at philippi and people hear almost inevitably what they want to hear in many ways put behind them those things they don't want to hear how many times when we read in the scriptures did jesus when talking about the coming kingdom of god or the coming in and breaking of the reign of God, did his own disciples just stop right at that assurance of victory? And they refused to accept or receive or begin to get their heads or hearts around the equal assurance that he gave them that God's Messiah would suffer and die on behalf of that kingdom. We remember the powerful story of Simon Peter who confesses Jesus as God's Messiah there in Caesarea Philippi. And immediately after, Jesus tells him that this same Messiah would suffer and die. And Peter just won't hear it. He rebukes Jesus. He pulls him aside, tries to correct his way of thinking. And Jesus has to rebuke him. Get behind me, Satan. At the Last Supper... The Lord's Supper, as as the disciples are celebrating Passover together in Luke 22. Jesus explains to them, this is my body for you. This blood is the blood of a new covenant, and it's mine. Even as he explains the way this kingdom would be constructed, even as he explains to them, this meal is a memorial, implying his departure from their sight. Even after years of explaining to them what sort of conduct would be the mode of operation for this new world that he's announcing. 
even in that tender moment of a Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, of communion, they start arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Selective hearing. It can be an impediment in our relationships, too. I see some of you nodding. How many times do we hear, even through people we know so well and know um, and know who love us and whom we love, do we hear words out of their mouths through filters that we've already constructed based on what we believe about that person? And so we hear what we want to hear. She's just out to get me. She doesn't support my, you know, softball fanaticism, whatever it may be. We hear what we want to hear. They tell us when we're raising children, that we have to be very careful in how we correct or redirect children because what they hear is what ultimately they will do. And so when, when correcting a small child, don't say, don't throw the football in the house because what do they hear? Throw the football in the house. That don't just kind of falls away. And it's not what you know, Jane Austen gave us this great word in Pride and Prejudice. She called it willful misunderstanding. It's not willful misunderstanding. It's just the way our brains and our lives are wired. We will hear selectively in order to remain engaged with the wider world. And sometimes we miss important information or sometimes we're just simply blind to all the information that comes to us. So for that child, instead of saying, don't throw the football in the house, you say something like, let's take the football outside. Not only do we solve the problem of the china, and that's autobiographical, by the way. I destroyed some of my mom's wedding china throwing the football in the house. She corrected me in the way that psychologists would not approve of. Actually, she was, she was, uh, she was pretty gracious. We were mortified. Back to the point. We hear what we want to hear. And if you don't believe me, find someone you know pretty well. Maybe they've started a new job or they, they've entered into a new relationship and say something very ambiguous like, you two deserve each other. And all of a sudden, depending on all the filters and all the expectations that they bring to a statement like that, what does this person believe about me? Is this person for me or against me? What do I believe about myself? Do I trust the person who is bringing this word to me? We do the same thing even when we read the Bible, don't we? We can approach the scriptures with an expectation that we will have our expectations confirmed and we'll find exactly what we're looking for. In the same way, there are some who seem to believe that everything they bring to the Scripture at any one point is wrong, and so they expect constantly for it to be overturned, and lacks an openness to how the Spirit may work in both our confirmations and in our confrontations. It's hard. But it takes a certain sort of inward look to be able to listen deeply to all that is being said, and that is what Paul captures in those two simple words, whatever happens. Paul's confessing that he doesn't know. The very famous distress signal that came 
from the beaches of Dunkirk is very much like this. But if not, it is said, sent to London. But if not, as thousands upon thousands of soldiers are pinned against the, against the water there in Dunkirk, these three words, which are a direct allusion to the book of Daniel, by the way. The verse reads this way. Our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known to thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods. And in receiving those three simple words, the sober acknowledgement of just how precarious their situation was communicated back to the home base. Because they knew that they were forthright and ready to resist to the last soldier. And at the same time, they weren't sure they would prevail. But if not, whatever happens, how quickly then the room in Philippi would have cooled off and gotten a little quieter. Because Paul, in these words, has given a very sober recognition that everything they hope for, everything they plan for, everything they wish for, just may not come to pass. It's not his to know, nor is it his to control. And so whatever happens, he tells them, don't look to me to be the one who provides the scaffolding for your life. Don't look to me to be the one who is the buttress that provides final integrity to your personal lives or to that church for your own health, for your own maturity, he begs them. Don't lean upon me. Instead, stand up. Stand up. So much of our life sometimes is lived in, in a performance, in a sense, before those whom we love, our mentors. I've said more than once just how hard it is to, to preach in two places. One is anywhere adjacent to Duke Divinity School. I've had to do it a couple of times. The other is in the church I grew up in. Because I have this desire to succeed and to show just how, just how great I've become. And I don't I try really hard for you all, but I don't have that need to please in the same way. But those that I grew up looking up to, I want their approval. I once heard a, a pastoral counselor say one time, how many men live their lives in performance before a parent, usually a father, who's no longer even with us? And it's true. Sometimes they're even unseen. And yet we still feel the burden of performance. And how did Danny frame it for us this morning? So much of the Christian life is not earned. But that doesn't negate our efforts. But Paul now calls upon that church then to live lives on their own, out loud, conduct yourselves, it's an interesting word. It's not the usual word that Paul uses that we translate conduct. It actually means sort of like to be a citizen of the city. So, you know, citizen yourself 
out loud, out and about, out in the world, in a manner that is worthy. It's an adverb. So conduct yourselves worthily. Our worthiness is not here descriptive of character. It describes our actions. Walk this walk. In all the corners of Philippi, where you already find yourselves, as a citizen of this city, show your true citizenship in the city of God. And what's that going to look like? What's that going to be like? Spoiler alert, he moves right to it in chapter 2. So as we make this turn next week, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort in his love, any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one spirit, of one mind. How will we show? the faith and the gospel of Jesus Christ. As citizens of Durham, as citizens of this world, to show our true citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be how we perform the Christ story with one another and with the world. And it's not something anyone can do for us. Though we can have and must have support along the way. As the apostle describes the importance of community in cultivating this sort of lifestyle out in the world, it's an indispensable part that the community that gathers around the person of Jesus Christ is a community that is going to live like Christ in ways that are counterintuitive, countercultural before the world. Because the good news overturns so much of what our individualistic expectations for success and failure make for us. And so the church is going to have to operate in many ways like a team or a military unit, striving and working together so that you might be one. It was so interesting over the years to talk to those veterans in, in my churches who, without fail, upon returning, would have some sort of annual meeting with those who survived from the units where they served overseas in wartime. Once a year, they would get together, not to remember necessarily the good old days, but simply to be reminded of the shared struggle that binds them together forever. In the small way, I saw this on Facebook the other week, one of the members of my football team posted a picture of the Miller School in, uh, in Albemarle County. There's a little private school, military school, and it still gives me the willies to, to see that picture because I remember we went there as a football team, and we had to wake up well before the sun rose and just run wind sprints on the front of the Miller School. We weren't allowed to really change our pants all week, so we wore the same gross football pants all week, and, and little by little we just we struggled and struggled and struggled together. And the bond that was shared in the struggle was something that we still, 30-plus years later, remember and are drawn to. Shared victory is only part of the story of faith. 
when we look deeply into our lives and we lay ourselves bare and recognizing that whatever happens, there is a community that shares that journey, we begin to understand the fullness of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Two quick stories. The first comes from Julian Barnes. Uh, He's an author, British author, whose wife died of cancer after about 30 years of marriage. And as he looks back on his life, and particularly his his loss, uh, in his book, Levels of Life, he writes these words. Some friends are as scared of grief as they are of death. They avoid you as if they fear infection. One friend advised him to get a dog. Other friends suggested that he go on a long vacation. Barely a week after his wife's funeral, another friend very cheerily asked him, so what are you up to? Are you going walking these days? Barnes describes those friends who can't even bring themselves to mention his wife's name as the silent ones. He remembers the silent ones this way. I remember a dinner conversation in a restaurant with three married friends. Each had known my wife for many years. I mentioned her name, and no one picked it up. I did it again and again, nothing. Perhaps the third time I tried deliberately to provoke them, and afraid to touch her name, they denied her thrice. And I thought the worse of them for it. Barnes imagines the silent ones really want to tell him, your grief is an embarrassment. We're just waiting for it to pass. And by the way, you're less interesting without her. Contrast that with a story that Devin Kelly tells. In his book, What I Want to Know of Kindness, he talks about a very close bond that he developed with three friends when he was in college. It was a running club. And together, through those years in college, they logged 10,000 miles together. And then Kelly describes the closeness that came from that shared struggle. When you run enough with someone, he says, you learn to hear them in a different way. You can conjure up their stride in your sleep. You can feel them without speaking. Their anxiety, their discomfort, their will, their struggle. Run with someone long enough and the intimacy that builds will allow you to pull out of them the fine line of their suffering and carry them along with you in the same way they carry you along with them. Some people spend their whole lives trying to figure out if their friends are really their friends. When you run with someone long enough, you know what it's like to share in their suffering, if only physical, if only for a moment. It transcends language. It's like sharing a singular, collective, beating heart. When one person's pulse quickens, the others do too. Now, a decade after college, Kelly got a text that his second mom named Nancy, was about to die. And his running friends, Nick and Ben and Julian, arrived at the hospital before Kelly. They were waiting at her bedside when Kelly walked in. And he said, I witnessed the way grief can carve away at men. The boys took me and led me to the oncology ward's waiting room, and I felt something. What was it? It was something larger, something like grace. Grace how quickly they adapted toward care. 
leaning gently into it. In this striving together, whatever happens, the apostle says, we are graced, literally graced, given a gift not only to believe in Christ, but begin to see how our sufferings are shared with him. The apostle has already invited the church to consider their current predicament as in some way deeply connected and in relationship to his own suffering in prison in Rome. Sometimes we need those flesh and blood, tangible companions who do not shy away from the difficult places in life, but instead recognizing that whatever happens means sometimes everything happens. And there is a community that authenticates what we say we believe about a God who will never leave us and never forsake us. Called out to live lives out and about worthily in imitation of Jesus. Saints, truly. And in our struggles to share with one another the good news that we are indeed never alone. And to know a God who spared nothing, not even his own life, that we might be saved. To understand that the struggle is not only real, it is expected. And we who share this unique and gracious life together have the privilege of testifying to the intimacy, to the love, and the power of what it means to say God is with us in this time. To know Jesus is to know his victory and to know his suffering. Thanks be to God that we don't suffer alone. Amen.